Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI. I'm a fertility doctor. Today, I want to talk about one question I get asked all the time, and that is, should I do genetic testing with IVF? Now, first of all, should I do genetic testing? That in of itself leads to so much confusion on what are you testing What is it for? What other testing is there? Because honestly, the word is so all-encompassing. So I'm going to break down the difference in preconception and pre-implantation and then post-conception testing, what those are. But really, I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why if you're doing IVF, you may want to consider or not consider genetic testing. I'm going to put a huge disclaimer here. The fertility field is often rooted in a lot of paternalism, as is all women's health. The reason why I'm even saying that at minute one in a podcast is because a lot of times doctors make assumptions about what you want to do or what you don't want to do, what you can handle or what you can't handle, what you can afford or what you cannot afford. Those things are often made without you even being aware And they get influenced into what a person is telling you because they are making assumptions. Now, their assumptions may well be right, but often they don't really know your true priority and your goals unless you are talking about that. They are assuming you have certain goals and your goals may be different. And I will break some of those down as we go. So it doesn't mean that your doctor may be wrong if they're saying one thing or another, but You have to be the advocate and make sure if they're not asking the question, you're giving them the answer. Meaning, what's your goal? What is the big picture? What's important to you? What can you handle? And importantly, what what can you not? We all have boundaries. So I'm not saying one way is right or wrong, but I'm saying you should be the one dictating those parameters and at least being presented the choices All right, before we dive in, I just want you to know that we are collecting questions for the fertility Q&A. We are going to be doing a special throughout the month of December where it is just hardcore Q&A episodes. We will divide them by topic, meaning if you've got a question, call and get it answered. These are voicemail questions, 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail. It can be anonymous. It doesn't have to be whatever your heart desires and we will answer them. You can also leave a question just on Instagram on Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. Some will be answered on Instagram. Some will be answered in the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. Some will be answered in the podcast episodes every week. So at the end of this episode, you will find five or so questions that we will answer that were asked on Instagram. And that is our for fertility sake segment. 
All right. So what I want to start with is talking about genetic testing in whole, because this is really confusing. So before we dive into, should you do it with IVF? We've got a backup. The very first type of genetic testing you are likely going to be offered is what we consider preconception genetic carrier screening. This is a blood test, and we are checking to see if you are a carrier of a single gene disorder. A good example of this is cystic fibrosis. This is where you have a mutation on chromosome 7 that causes a certain gene to not function correctly, and you having the CF mutation likely have no clinical signs and symptoms. The reason why I say likely, just since we're off on CF, cystic fibrosis carriers who are men actually can have some clinical symptoms, and this is something called CBAVD, congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens, and it can cause them to not have a vas deferens, and the vas deferens connects the testes to the ejaculatory tract, essentially your shooting blanks creating sperm in the testes, but it's not getting connected. Now to have full-on cystic fibrosis, this is, we'll put it at short, where you're the cells that make mucus, sweat, digestive juice get messed up. The biggest players are going to be the lungs, what we think about many people with CF need a lung transplant, get chronic pulmonary infections, and then the pancreas also can be an issue. So long-term CF is really terrible. It has a short life expectancy. Getting a lung transplant sounds not great. That's an autosomal recessive condition. So most things that you're getting tested for in genetic carrier screening are single gene disorders that are called autosomal recessive, meaning you need both of the genes, one from the egg source, one from the sperm source, and you have to inherit both of them to have the full-fledged disease. Otherwise, you're just a carrier, and most of the time, you're a silent carrier, and it gets passed in families, and you do not know. So if you and your partner both carry CF, you have a 50% chance of having a child that is also a carrier, meaning they inherited one good chromosome from one person, one bad from the other. You have a 25% chance that your child's totally fine. They got the good from each person. And then you have a 25% chance you have a child that actually has the terrible disease. Now, CF is one of the most common ones, and that's because it's survivable. So, so many diseases are tested you've not even heard about because they're not, and I've had patients, you've had babies die from them, and they're terrible. So, if you're going into your OBGYN and you walk in and you say, hey, we want to get pregnant, I'm scheduling a preconception visit, which one, did you know that's a thing? You should know that. You can do that. It's fantastic. Your OB also loves this visit because it's too much to talk about at an annual. That's not the purpose of an annual. Purpose of an annual is for health-related screening, pap smears, breast, mammogram, thyroid, general health. If you want to get pregnant, then a preconception visit allows them to talk about the questions you might have about what do I need to do when I get pregnant, to get pregnant, how long is too long, all the stuff we talk about, but also the preconception blood work which typically includes preconception genetic carrier screening, your blood type, check to see if you're immune to rubella varicella. Those are both viruses that can cause birth defects if you get it for the first time and you're pregnant. And then sometimes blood levels like vitamin D. So preconception testing is awesome. If you don't get this done at your OB or you don't see your OB or you see me or any fertility doctor, we're going to talk about it. And I recommend everybody do this. One, because... Is a heck of a lot easier to know now than to go through the terrible process of losing a child. And IVF, yes, is the only way we could screen the gene now, and I'll go through that. But I've had patients who say that's not an option for us, but maybe we will adopt instead. Maybe we will not become parents. Maybe we'll use a sperm or egg donor to mitigate this risk. There's no right answer, but I live in the world of knowledge is power, and you being able to make the choice and maybe it's not. I have patients who don't have a deadly disease. They have a congenital hearing loss, a deafness, and they decided not to test this out, not to do IVF for this, but they started taking sign language so that they would be prepared that if they had a non-hearing child, they would be able to communicate and be prepared no matter what happened. So knowledge is power. So preconception genetic carrier screening is blood panel testing for you and your partner. You both should have it done 
Officially, if you have it done and you carry zero things, then your partner doesn't have to. But if you carry anything, they should get it done. If you're trying to get pregnant and using a sperm donor or an egg donor, then the other gamete source, egg or sperm, should also be tested. And this is a tricky one because you then need to make sure the donor has been screened for anything that you are positive for and that they do not carry it. The reason why that's important is because we can now test you for almost 700 diseases. 10 years ago, it was pretty standard to test for the big three, cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and fragile X. So your donor, depending on when they donated, could have been tested for three or 700 things. So you actually have to look at the report and see if they were tested for what you have. Now you can run 700 gene panel because in a tube of your blood, you get so many cells. So it is now so much easier to run looking for these known mutations. Let's just imagine the blood test has these flags where these mutations are, and they're putting your cells through it to see what sticks. That's very oversimplified. But it's important because it's not that way for embryos. So when we think about other types of genetic testing that exist before we get to embryos, the next most common is going to be the same type of testing, but when you're already pregnant. If you didn't have preconception testing done preconception, then you're pregnant, your doctor might offer to test you for cystic fibrosis. Even just that alone can be common. It's not typically a big panel at this point. If you're pregnant and you now carry CF and you find out for the first time, then they will test your partner. And if you both carry it, they are offering you invasive diagnostic techniques like an amniocentesis to see if the baby has cystic fibrosis. And the reason why is then to give you the opportunity to make a decision if you're going to terminate or not, or to prepare you for specialists and interventions that you're going to need after birth. But you're pregnant at this time. So just important to understand the process. I would much rather do all this earlier than have to be making these decisions and having that stress while pregnant. But if you didn't have it done beforehand, this is 100% the recommendation. And again, it's not all about forcing you to terminate or trying to talk you into it. Nobody's trying to do that. But it's about being prepared. Your baby will need different monitoring specialists, etc. And if you know, you know. Now, the other type is another blood test that you could get called a karyotype. And this is different. This is typically drawn for you. So, so all of these so far are blood types that you get drawn. A karyotype is typically drawn under the context of recurrent pregnancy loss. It can also be drawn if you are having early ovarian failure or something is off. Typically, it is looking for a translocation, meaning your chromosomes switch some spots. That doesn't usually impact you as a physical human too much because you still have, because you still have all the chromosomes to encode all the genes you need. But when you go and split, if they've switched spots, you are giving an unbalanced chromosome half the time, at least, to your offspring. Therefore, you have a very high chance of miscarriage. So this is very often done in the recurrent miscarriage world. Not looking for single gene disorders. You can have genetic carrier screening done. Then you have a bunch of miscarriages. Then your doctor says, we need to do genetic testing. And you say, I already had that done. No, you didn't. This is different. So this is not your fault. It's the doctors. We need to explain better. But so genetic carrier screening, screening for single gene disorders that you could be a carrier of. Karyotype, looking at your chromosomes to see if you have the right number, often done in the context of recurrent pregnancy loss. Now, the reason why these are important is because these are different types of things that we can do with embryo testing as well, if you know. So when we talk about doing genetic testing on embryos, let's walk it back and we'll tie all of this in. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 
and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Traditionally, people are going to say, I'm doing genetic screening of the embryos. Old nomenclature was PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening. We now call it all PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing, because you used to have PGS and PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which was doing some of the other options. So PGS is the same as what we call PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. I am now looking to see if your embryo has the right number of chromosomes, very similar to doing a karyotype of you, but looking for each embryo. You cannot tell if the embryo has single gene disorder. I can't tell if the embryo has cystic fibrosis. I can only tell, does it have all the right chromosomes? Does it have an extra, like Down syndrome? Is it missing one? And you can see very large translocations, but not all of them. So some of the translocations that can still cause miscarriage, that is separate. So PGTSR is pre-implantation genetic testing for structural rearrangement. That means essentially they make a marker for where your translocation is and they see which embryos are balanced or unbalanced. Your embryos could still have the translocation, but it's in the right spot so they can pass it on, but you can have a child's not going to miscarry. If you have an unbalanced embryo, that is typically going to cause a miscarriage. So whenever you're doing PGTSR, you're also doing PGTA. So you're going to see which ones are just have the right number of chromosomes, one, then which ones are going to carry the translocation. And PGTM is similar. PGTM is pre-implantation genetic testing for a monogenetic disease, a single gene disorder is what that means. Mono means one. So in this, we are looking for that co-carrier situation most of the time. So what that means, we'll use cystic fibrosis. You both carry CF. We make markers because for an embryo, we are biopsying five to eight cells, not this thousands or hundreds of cells of yours that are in one tube of blood. We are taking such a small number that we can't run the test for 700 diseases. So we have to know exactly what we're looking for. So now we're going to send this marker through to see what your embryos have, but we have to make a flag first. So This is called a probe, and it can take months to develop a probe. So you get genetic care screening. You both carry the same thing. Then you make a probe. Then you do IVF. Similar to PGTSR, you are also going to get PGTA. So which embryos have the right number of chromosomes? Check A. Then PGTM, which ones carry the mutation? So you're going to find out which embryos are not affected but a carrier, not affected and not a carrier, and then affected. So you would expect 25% do not carry at all, 50% carrier, and 25% have disease. But genetics are weird, especially when you add age-related aneuploidy on top of it. If you're 
36 and we expect half your embryos to be genetically abnormal just based on random genetic abnormalities or aneuploidy, chromosomal abnormalities that we know increase with age because our eggs are stuck in a stage of cell division that makes them extremely vulnerable and they've been in that stage since before you were born. Those meiotic spindles holding the eggs apart, they're just proteins and they absorb the wear and tear of your life and they break down over time. Older you get, more chromosomal damage, even if you're the healthiest person on earth, age is still the number one driver of success. And we're going to talk a lot about PGTA because that is often what we're talking about If should you do genetic testing with IVF. But if you are 36 and 50% are genetically abnormal from the jump, and then you have to apply this 25%, 50-25%, it can be very interesting how that math splits. So heads up. It doesn't always look perfect. The other thing here is there is also cancer screening that you might have done. That is not preconception genetic carrier screening. When I screen you for preconception testing, I'm not testing you for BRCA. I'm not testing to see if you have a gene for Lynch syndrome. I am not testing those. Those genes exist. So if you have an extensive family history of cancer, this is different. This is done often by a geneticist who works with an oncology office. Sometimes your PCP or your OBGYN will do some screening to see if you are high risk based on family members. That's why knowing your family history, if you can, is really important because that's how you get screened for those. Those diseases are inherited differently. They're all over the place, but some of the more common ones will use BRCA. BRCA is an autosomal dominant disease. So if you have it, you're at risk. And it means 50% of your offspring are going to have it and be at risk. So we certainly do PGTM for BRCA, but the math is a little bit different. And again, if you came to me and you're like, hey, I carry BRCA gene, I'm at risk for breast and ovarian cancer, I want to make some embryos that don't have this risk, I don't want my children to have to go through this, great. We're still going to do preconception genetic carrier screening too to make sure you don't carry other things that also need to be tested. And then your cumulative rate, how many embryos do you need, is going to be based off your age, your child's goal, and these other factors. All right, to wrap it up on what exists out there is that when you get pregnant, you go to the doctor's office, we now have something called NIPT, non-invasive prenatal testing. And this is a blood test that can be done when you're pregnant. And what it is looking for is something called fetal DNA, like free fetal DNA. And these fetal blood cells let's simplify it, move through the placenta and get into your maternal bloodstream. And so we can take a blood of you, mom's blood, centrifuge out and the baby cells weigh a different amount and then test them to see if they're at high risk for more common genetic diseases, typically Down syndrome, trisomy 18, 13. And then you're also finding out sex chromosomes. So you can know boy or girl. When people do the early blood test to see what their baby is, this is what they are doing. Now, PGT has come a long way, 100% at the beginning. We were recommending everybody who had it still had NIPT. It is still standard to do that, and MFM still recommend it. Many studies have come out on our end showing that testing is not changing outcome. PGT has gotten so good as genetic sequencing has gotten so much better. But if your doctor says, hey, I want to do NIPT, Absolutely. No test is perfect. If that's what they recommend, let them do that. But more often it is done in the context of screening to see about aneuploidy, which if you did PGT, you really already did that. So you can see that when somebody talks about genetic testing, that can mean so many different things. And if you're confused, follow it up. Is this genetic carrier screening? Are you testing my karyotype? Are we talking about Fetal testing, post-conception, are we talking about embryo testing? When it comes to embryo testing, so PGTA is what we're talking about most of the time, and this is where a lot of the debate happens. We have to remember that the field of IVF changes dramatically. So things that we did 10 years ago are and should be different today. This means your doctor needs to be practicing differently than they did 10 years ago, and you would be shocked at how some people don't. They either don't trust their lab, they don't want to learn, they just want to do things the way they've always been done. 
And there's a time and a place for everything and for a discussion. So if we look at should you do genetic testing, one, the general recommendation is to offer it, to recommend it, to really strongly consider it to people who are at a higher risk of having genetic abnormalities, advanced maternal age, and euploidy contributing to their infertility. So this is anybody who is 35 and older or anybody who's had recurrent pregnancy loss. And for me, the longer you've had infertility, if you have unexplained infertility, if I don't know what's going on, why do I feel comfortable just assuming your embryos are going to be an average percentage normal? That has never made sense to me for unexplained infertility. If I don't know, why do I suddenly think you're going to be average on this when you have fallen off the curve on everything else? So if we're looking at it in a narrow tube, your diagnosis makes an important distinction in what you may be doing. And we'll obviously take genetics out of the picture. If you carry a single gene disorder, if you're wanting to balance your family because you do find out sex chromosomes, those are obviously easy reasons why you might choose to do genetic testing. The reality is genetic testing gives you a higher pregnancy rate per transfer across the board in every age range. Genetic testing of the embryo lowers your miscarriage rate across the board in every age range. Most, most importantly to me, it saves you time and it saves you emotional and physical energy. If I can sit here and tell you, you likely will have more failed transfers if you do not do genetic testing. Think about that. You're going to go through transfers. We know you have a lower chance of it working. And then we also don't know what all is contributing. If you have a high percentage of genetically abnormal embryos, we don't, we just don't know. And I tell the story all the time because for a long time, and I will say the tide is getting turned and I've always been on this turned side because I want to think about your whole family, your whole family. We know if we look at cost effectiveness of you trying to get pregnant with one baby and you're under age 35, it's the same if you do or don't do genetic testing. And the easy reason why is that genetic testing costs about as much as a transfer. So you're saying, I'm not doing testing, so I'm going to accept more transfers, lower success rate, higher miscarriage rate. But if I do the testing, I might spend more, but I have a higher success rate and a lower miscarriage rate. So the cost effectiveness is the same if you're younger, if you want one kid. If you know you want more than one child, the cost effectiveness largely sways towards genetic testing because we are asking for this group of embryos to do multiple things for us. We are going to be reaching into this pot multiple times. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your stand glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And more so than success or miscarriage, which are extremely important variables, you have the opportunity to intervene now. And you know, if you listen to this podcast, the reason why it exists, I believe that knowledge is power, understanding your body, understanding your odds of success. Being in the position to make the decision 
You don't get the choice in one group and you do in the other. And the example I always use, a dear friend of mine from middle school and high school and college, y'all, I did not grow up here, lives here in Austin. She came to me with her wife to get pregnant. She was young when we put him through a cycle. And what happened, so she was under age 35 and we sent off eight embryos and they shouldn't have had infertility. This is what we call absolute male factor. Donor sperm should be easy peasy. Sent off eight embryos. One came back genetically normal. Oh, that's so far off the curve. We would expect it more than 50% normal. We only had one. Okay. Get over the initial disappointment, but then we get the opportunity to have the conversation and to say, hey, we've got two roads here. One is that it is hard to make a normal embryo at age 33. How do we think this is going to be later on at 36 if you're trying for another baby? So if we're having difficulty finding a genetically normal embryo at a young age with a high egg number, and we want more than one child, we should do more cycles. We can go. And before you go and get pregnant and we pull you from the game and make you sit on the sideline, we could do get next month group of eggs and test them. And then if we don't get what we need, we could do it again. So we have the opportunity to bank embryos now that may not exist in the future. Because if I sent off eight and only found one normal, when I send off five or six in a few years, might I find zero normal? Absolutely. Or we could have an honest talk about our family goals. And maybe we wanted two kids, but maybe we feel okay just going for one and viewing it different. And they decided they were okay going for one and we transferred and she's the most darling child. And I will also tell you that this was embryo seven out of eight on the list. So if we had not tested, we would have had so many failed transfers, most likely, right? Because you're probably not randomly pulling embryo seven. And you are sitting here having the failure, not knowing what's going on, spending money, spending time. Or on the other end, if we randomly had pulled number seven and we had seven other embryos in the bank, we would feel so embryo rich. And it would be so hard for us when we came back for that next baby that we've been planning our life around to then go through transfer after transfer that we're not going to work. So it's all about the knowledge and the data and what you may do with it. I personally am a fan of genetic testing for a large majority of people because I'm nerdy and like data. The people that get me and I will get on my soapbox about this one and that I don't like, again, is the older patient with low ovarian reserve who is being told, don't do genetic testing. Let's just put the embryos back in and do fresh transfer. I do not understand. One, because miscarriage can take you out of the game for a while. Two, who really wants to go through failed transfer or miscarriage? Part of the benefit of IVF at that age range is knowing that not all of your embryos are normal and being able to find the normal one. And you can turn around and get into cycle so much faster if you're not in your two-week wait, waiting to be pregnant, and then you got to start the whole shebang over again. So it does not utilize the time that you have remaining if you are older, and especially if you have diminished ovarian reserve, to be not testing your embryos and putting them inside. If you are 41 and you have low ovarian reserve, and this is what your doctor is recommending, and they're putting in an untested embryo, you have a 12% chance of a live birth. That's not very high. And I'm spending more time in that cycle before I can get you to the next one. And the time and the emotional physical drain is really what gets me. Because yes, the argument is they're the same embryos no matter what. They are. They are. If you only made two embryos, they are the same two embryos. Agreed. But I can either test them and know which ones have the highest chance of success and only put you through the emotional pregnancy transfer stage and put your money to the transfer then versus transferring, waiting. And then again, miscarriage y'all who has listened and had a miscarriage, you know, I have, it's not like a negative test and you can just do treatment the next day. 
they can drag on such a long time. So this game plan is not one that I'm a fan of. There are people who will preach, preach fresh transfers, not tested embryos and older patients. And to me, that's the huge benefit of it. Who do I not always do genetic testing in? So if you have a very defined reason for infertility and you're younger, tubal factor or PCOS tend to be some of the top. I guess the third option would be, despite my friend's situation, if you're using donor sperm and you haven't failed IUIs, you're just wanting to expedite care through IVF. But at some point, and I have a patient right now who's pregnant but went through and was super young, had PCOS, should not have needed genetic testing based on the normal parameters, had a ton of embryos. And you know what? We ended up thawing them, biopsying them, and refreezing them to do genetics when we eventually were not getting the outcome we wanted because of loss. So it's all in the big picture. Certainly, there are patients who can't afford it, and it's a rate-limiting step to doing the whole process. So there are so many different facets here. But remember that a transfer costs money too. It also costs time, physical, and emotional energy. And so really understanding those success rates. IVF success rates, live birth rate per cycle if you're using untested embryos, 40% if you're under age 35, 30% if you're 35 to 37, 20% if you're 38 to 40, 10 to 12% if you are 41 to 42, if you are 43 to 44%, and over age 44, it's less than 1%. So those numbers get to the point where they're not any different than natural conception. So once you enter the realm of 5%, 3%, 1%, what you're starting to see is no real difference than what you're seeing if you're just trying with intercourse. And that's why if you are older, and you're not willing to do genetic testing with IVF, depending on your etiology of infertility, your doctor may say there's no statistical benefit to doing this. I can't get you a higher live birth rate than you having intercourse. You have normal sperm and open tubes. Genetic testing is the only thing that's going to move the needle for you. And I'll say that to people. So we also don't want to do something if it's not changing your percentage of success at all. And then just to bring it home, success rates with a genetically tested embryo, a euploid embryo across the age ranges is going to be about 60 to 65% with a single genetically tested euploid embryo. So that is just kicking the butt out of these other percentages. And I would rather do cycles and find the embryo and get that success rate versus spinning my wheels, especially at the older age with these lower chances of success. When you have mosaic embryos, that is one of the things that is confusing. And I think it's important just to understand your clinic's policy. Most will transfer low-level mosaics after genetic counseling, potentially seeing MFM, just understanding that if you transfer a mosaic embryo, again, an embryo that has two cell lines, you might need further testing once you're pregnant to figure out if the baby potentially is at risk. Those are considered last level embryos before you're going to go on a donor egg or leave treatment. Most people don't transfer high level mosaics. I'm just saying most. Most won't transfer genetic abnormalities. That's the point of the testing. Down syndrome, trisomy 13, trisomy 18, because our goal is to get you to the highest chance of a live born baby. And even though some of those babies can be born, they ultimately have a lower rate of getting there. But those are things that you want to understand about your clinic and you want to know. The other thing that I'll end on is to say, and I've talked about this before in an episode about IVF and religion, and I know it's not all religion, so maybe it should be called IVF and ethics. If you have a concern or your hesitation to do IVF is about having leftover embryos or freezing them or what's going to happen to them or not wanting to throw them away, have a discussion with your doctor because often we can make certain changes to make the process something you feel comfortable with, or maybe it's not quite what you thought because often I have a patient so concerned about so many supernumerary embryos and that's just not the reality. 
And then they're shocked to find out they actually need multiple cycles to even get what they need. So ask your questions, open communication, have a team that listens to you. Just like we don't want to make presumptions about you and you don't want us to, don't make presumptions about us. Don't presume we won't talk to you or honor or have this discussion. Some things may not be doable. Your team can tell you that. All right. Well, now I am going to get to the question and answer part. Remember, these are questions that you ask every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. I appreciate you guys so much. And I hope this episode helped you understand a little bit about the debate between genetic testing and what you may want to do or not want to do in a certain circumstance. All right. Well, now I'm going to answer some of your fertility questions. This is always some of my favorite. I just love seeing what you're answering. And it just shows to me what a deficit there is in women's health and fertility knowledge. You can ask these questions on Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some will be answered on Instagram, some here every week on the podcast, and some in the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. That's where we moved fertility in the news, which I still really love, but I just wanted it to be more evergreen here on the podcast. So fertility news, that's more current events, and that's in the newsletter. Also, just a quick plug to remind you that the courses exist. There's a natural fertility course. This is my favorite product. I just put so much into it, and this is your lifestyle and all the questions you are really asking comes with access to the Facebook group, which I am helping moderate, and it's a great community. There's also an IVF course. If you're just doing IVF and want to learn more about the protocols, questions to ask, and red flags, you can save and bundle them both, and I think that's really the very best option, especially if you're doing IVF and you're interested in just controlling every variable that you can. All right, question one. I had 24 follicles measured at my last monitoring visit, but only 18 were retrieved. Were these follicles empty and what causes that? The reality is that this is actually common, especially if your doctor or whoever's doing your ultrasound measures every follicle. I like to measure as many follicles as I can because it just gives me an idea of what I consider the entire cohort. But very often, it's hard to get every single follicle into the mature range. That's the goal of the protocol. We are trying to accomplish that. But sometimes you just can't do that because remember, the body wants to ovulate one. So we're trying to ask the body to do something different. I find that in cases like this, where you have a higher number of follicles and you are probably on an antagonist protocol, we tend to see a greater spread. It's harder to get them more synchronized than on some of the other protocols we have that you don't want to use for a high responder. So sometimes it's just where you are. So most likely, most of these were too small. Most people consider the mature range 15 to 16 to about 20 to 21, depending on the patient, the protocol, and a few other specifics when you look at the full picture. So sometimes this is, oh, I had some follicles measured at 12 and 13. That egg wasn't mature enough to be able to be retrieved. Some immature eggs you can retrieve, but some you just don't. Another option could be, well, did you start to ovulate? The standard trigger is anywhere from 35 to 36 hours, but some people start to ovulate a little bit earlier. So maybe you were in the process of ovulating and some of those follicles had already released their egg. Another circumstance is that the opposite of the first, they grew too big. There's this idea that more is better and I'll just keep pushing and get bigger and bigger, but there's a limit. So if you have a follicle that's 26 millimeters on average measurement, that egg is overcooked, for lack of a better word, post-mature, over-mature, degenerated, all the same, but sometimes you just don't end up retrieving that. And then occasionally you can have a follicle that's really a cyst. Maybe it was left over. This happens more if you had a cyst at baseline and then it gets harder to distinguish later on, or if you didn't have a baseline or you didn't come to very much monitoring. Empty follicle syndrome is a thing, and this is where you have no eggs retrieved from the follicles. It's a problem in the process of maturation. If you think about it, the eggs don't release from the side, so they can't be retrieved. How can I get involved in research studies for infertility or pregnancy loss? I'm going to presume this means as a patient, I understand maybe it doesn't, but I'm going to presume that is what we're talking about. When it comes to miscarriage, Dr. Ruth Lothie at Stanford does some of the best research on it. She actually does have a study that you can enroll in. It's called the HOPE study. 
You can find information about this if you're on Instagram at Pregnancy Loss Answers. So that's the handle, Pregnancy Loss Answers, or you could Google it, the HOPE study, and it's out of Stanford. Essentially, what they're looking for in this study is to try to see if there are genes or chromosomes or certain genetic profiles that are associated with the unexplained pregnancy loss. And so it is not a very intense, it's a registry, you would give blood. So I, as somebody who went through multiple miscarriage, think this is so interesting because the unexplained is so hard and finding an answer, especially if it could help you or it could help others, just gives some meaning and purpose to the pain. So Again, it's called Pregnancy Loss Answers is the handle. It's the HOPE study out of Stanford. To be eligible, you have to be over age 18, have one or more pregnancy loss, live in the United States, and you'll have to fill out a questionnaire and provide blood and saliva samples, but everything's confidential, and you can help find answers about miscarriage. So I love that you're even asking that, and I think that'd be an amazing thing for us all to contribute to. Is it normal to have an anovulatory cycle after a miscarriage? It absolutely can be. And sometimes it's just very, very delayed, but there are some warning signs to look out for. So the big things to think about when you're pregnant, HCG is being made. That HCG is telling the brain not to send out any FSH. It is also encouraging progesterone production from the corpus luteum if you're early on or the placenta if there's a placenta. Now, when you have lost the pregnancy, the HCG level has to decline and that will then release that brain suppression and allow FSH to rise and for you to ovulate. The higher the HCG was, so the further along you were, or the longer the miscarriage process took, the, meaning the longer that HCG hung around in your system, the longer it's going to take for that suppression to drop before you can then start to grow an egg. So it's not uncommon for that next period. It could be you know, four weeks after a loss, it could be eight to 10 weeks after a loss. And the reason why is just depending on how long it took to come down. This is a reason why sometimes surgical intervention, especially if you're further along, like a DNC could be advantageous because it drops that HCG much faster. It also makes sure that you get everything. One warning sign is not a real period, but spotting or bleeding, or if you're persistently getting a positive pregnancy test, even if it's faint, that could be a sign that the miscarriage has not been fully completed and leaving some of that miscarriage tissue inside can actually cause an inflammatory reaction and scar tissue. So make sure you have a negative pregnancy test before you ever start tracking because HCG and LH for an ovulation kit, they can cross react and it can confuse you. So make sure you really have a negative pregnancy test. If you're following it down, once it gets negative, you should probably ovulate about two weeks after that, but that means your period would come four weeks after that. So if it took two to four weeks for HCG to drop and then two weeks to ovulate, then two weeks to get a period, you can easily see how that's eight weeks from the loss before you ever got a cycle back again. Remember that you ovulate before that cycle, so you could get pregnant if you're wanting to. If you're not wanting to or your doctor wants you to have a break, use protection. I have scar tissue, so only one of my ovaries would be reachable with egg retrieval. Is IVF still possible or worth it? This is actually not an uncommon situation, meaning people who have severe abdominal scarring or endometriosis can definitely have an ovary that gets stuck either to the back or the top of the uterus or the pelvic side wall. And if you think about what we do at egg retrieval, we are taking this long needle and we are placing it through the vagina into the ovary and we're draining out all of those follicles and getting test tubes of the fluid. But it's a straight needle and we gotta get into the ovary. And so if it's really far away, there could be really important things, blood vessels, intestines, bladder, ureters, all in the way. And we can't always get to every ovary, that's a fact. Now, I will say, I always try to tell somebody this. So somebody's told you, so this is fantastic. Hey, I don't know if I can get this ovary, meaning we're going to follow the one I know I can get. I'm going to follow those follicles more closely. I'm going to make my decisions on those follicles and not necessarily let the ones that I don't know if I can get play into my brain. Sometimes when you're asleep, I can actually press, twist your uterus, move things around and get an ovary that I previously thought was unable to be accessed 
into a plane that feels very safe to get. Not always, but sometimes. So I will tell somebody, hey, we're going to try when you're asleep. We're going to definitely push around. If you are at a clinic that doesn't do actual anesthesia, meaning you don't get propofol, you're not like asleep, then that's not going to be possible because you'd be in too much pain. Your body would not allow me to push on your uterus or twist it that way. But most clinics, as we've talked about, do actual anesthesia with propofol. And if that's what you're having, then it might be something they would consider trying to push and go after. But the short answer is, depends on the clinical picture, how many antral follicles are on the ovary we know we can get, how old are you, etc. Typically, it is still worth it. We just let our decisions be made by the ovary that we know we can get. All right, guys. Well, thank you for asking such great questions. You can ask your questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every single Monday. You can find more information about the courses in the newsletter and all the other offerings on the website, nataliecrawfordmd.com. And don't forget there is a resources section. In this section, you can search. So IVF or PCOS or endometriosis and go and learn about all the content that I have made on that particular topic. We love getting topic updates. So send those in if there's something that you would love to see covered on the As A Woman podcast. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.